0: Hello, and welcome back to uh, A Helpful Hand in History. Yes, it has been a good while, but I'm back and donning my quill, account book and voting slip and a look towards the government and finance under Henry VII. This episode will be slightly different to ones before because it represents more of an opinion piece. As seen in the title, Bosworth doesn't mark the date that England was sucked into the early modern period like an unwilling piece of Lego up the throat of a hoover. No, Henry VII's policies were part of the continuity of good governance, stretching back to Edward IV's reign. Henry, to that end, was a fraud, a copycat, but most villainous of all, a Welshman. But let us first provide some context. On the 22nd of August 1485, Henry crushed Richard II's army at Bosworth Field. Henry had spent much of his youth in northwest France and lived at the court of the Duke of Brittany for many years. His life, as one would expect, changed significantly when he became king. But Henry must have been acutely aware of how easy it had been. Just one battle somewhere near Leicester and voila, the other geezer's dead and now he's pissing gold and flushing it with Yorkist tears. Henry didn't want it to be so easy. He couldn't allow another usurper to take his head and bury him under a car park and then have some poet write some mean stories about him in a hundred years' time. Thus, Henry's every policy was designed to keep him safe, and principal upon these was his government and finance. This is what ensured security, keeping people happy, not rebellious, and keeping the king's coffers burdened with gold. John Guy, the Tudor historian, describes this as good governance by the principles of John Fortescue an advisor in the time of Edward IV. The basic idea was, and I'm paraphrasing here, that political stability strongly correlated with crown and income. That is, if the king has more income, his kingdom is more stable. This represents a contrast to what occurred during the Wars of the Roses, where Henry VI income dwindled and dwindled, seeing nobles rise in power, such as the Nevilles or the Howards, who could challenge the authority of the monarch. Thus, Henry VII's financial policy was geared towards political, not economic means. Henry moved control of the nation's finances from the Exchequer to his own personal coffers, thereby seizing direct control of the finances of England. Henry's personal signatures donned thousands of writs, demands, pledges and letters. He was at the centre of the financial and therefore political administration. The the 1486 Act of Resumption restored lands that had been given away in the Wars of the Roses to Henry. 140 acts of attainder were dished out, depriving rebellious subjects of their lands and titles. Since 40 of these were repealed, we can see that they weren't designed to expand the king's wealth, otherwise he'd just kept it all, they were designed to force subjects into line. Of the nine most noble families who had been attainted, four had theirs repealed. Here, political power could be seen again as the dominant factor within policy decisions. Knowledge of the influence of the ideas of John Fortescue allows us to see that the expansion of the king's wealth wasn't an end in itself, but a means to achieve further political power. This is further visible with what is often considered to be the most rapacious of Henry VII's policies, the council, learned Law, and the expansion of the king's feudal dues and prerogative rights. Henry vastly expanded his revenue in this regard. Income from wardships increased by 20 times. Henry charged eye-watering amounts to infringements on marriage licences, such as an £8,000 fine to the Duke of Buckingham, or on acts against retaining, such as a £70,000 fine to the Lord of Abergavenny. Henry's, Henry's webs of bonds and recognizances also saw a rise in income. By the end of his reign, Henry's crown-land income had gone from twenty-nine to £42,000 per year. Yet, wealth wasn't Henry's ultimate goal. These policies were designed to limit the autonomy of nobles. Acts against retaining in 1485 and 1504 limited the ability of nobles to raise personal forces. Bonds and recognisances tied the nobility into a degree of self-enforcement and fear, such that only 16 families were tainted by these by Henry's death. Charges for marrying without licences restrict the ability of nobles to make alliances with one of each other. Without the Crown's prior approval. Again, expanded the king's personal wealth is clearly a means to the end of political power. Lastly, this is clear in the king's foreign policy. On several occasions, Henry sacrificed great volumes of wealth in order to snuff out pretenders such as Perkin Warbeck. England ramped up its involvement in the Breton Crisis once Warbeck was forwarded as a contender to the throne, spending vast amounts of money to secure the Treaty of the in 1492, which forced France to expel Paul Perkin. Henry then issued embargo on the Netherlands from 1493 to 1496, whilst they harboured Warbeck. In total, it is estimated that Henry spent £1 million in order to secure his capture and execution, of which Henry finally achieved in 1499. But what was Henry's government like, how it function, and with who? Well, first of all, Henry's government was continuous of so York's government prior to Richard's. Around 30 of Henry's councillors were once of Uh, once those of Edward IV, including John Morton, Henry's Archbishop of Canterbury and Lord Chancellor, further showing that Henry's governance was in line with previous systems. Henry designed his governance so that he could consolidate his own position. He had 227 councillors in his reign, yet his own King's Council only had six or seven seats. This saw great competition within the councillors to receive Henry's favour. Henry also saw more competition in court through introducing roughly 30 lawyers and new men into court. For Henry, according to J.R. Lander, loyalty and ability were his only criteria for service. Henry thus designed his court with similar personnel to Edward IV and with the goal to further his monopoly over political power. Ultimately, Henry was a usurper who had killed a man to sit on his throne. As seen, Henry acted in every which way to secure political power. Most intriguing of these is Henry's financial policies. For many years, people have settled on the lazy interpretation of Henry as a greedy, rapacious monarch who sucked in wealth at any opportunity. Yet, I like to think of Henry as a frightened man, both cursed and gifted with the knowledge of how easy power slips from one hand to the other. It is therefore clear that Henry's financial policy followed the stead of the Yorker's kings like Edward IV. To that end, Bosworth far from marks a rupture in English history. When Richard was slain, there was no angelic moment where Henry realised he must announce the start of a new era. Henry's mind was where it had always been. Survival.